We spent the past few weeks looking at the life of, of Daniel, a man who li- had to learn how to live a life of faith in the God of the Bible in the midst of a culture that, that did not share that belief <clears throat> and even pushed back against that belief. And in this story, we read about his three friends um, as well. Who, and Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had gone from living in a culture that everyone agreed with their faith in the God of the Bible to now no one agrees with their faith in the God of the Bible. And in fact, their faith is something their culture is pushing back against. And while obviously our cultural setting is very different in many, many ways um, than what these three men faced, the reality is you and I, we have to, to answer the same questions they had to answer and face some of the similar pressures that they had to face. That what does a life of faith in the God of the Bible look like in the midst of a society that pushes back against that belief? That how do you have faith in, in a secular world? Or maybe for some of you, you hear, you hear this story and you immediately think, this is, this is like a children's fairy tale story. Yeah, we should tell our kids this story, but we're adults, right? We can't take this thing seriously. And, and before you think that, I would just say a few things. That, that first, um, we have many independent accounts of Nebuchadnezzar burning dissidents in a furnace. This isn't the only story where um, Nebuchadnezzar is threatening to put d- dissidents in, in a furnace. And, and more than that, uh, the statue that he's built... This golden statue, we have ruins of other statues that are like this um, in the ancient world. And beyond that, even we have plenty of examples of kings and kingdoms, Nebuchadnezzar himself, who demanded that people um, who, who were in their kingdom give ultimate allegiance to their kingdom under penalty of death. They bow to the image or die. And so the, all of those things we have independent evidence for. Um, that everything about the story, it's entirely reasonable until we get to the end. Now, the reason you might be tempted to think, well, this didn't happen, this is a children's fairy tale story, is is when we get to the end and we get to the fourth man in the furnace. Whether you're a Christian or whether you're not, whether you're a Christian, you have trouble with maybe believing some of the stories of the Bible, you're not a Christian, you don't believe any of the stories of the Bible. The only reason we have trouble with this story is because there's a fourth man in the furnace. So before you dismiss the story, the fourth man... Hear it, because what makes the story so interesting to me is that this, this story goes right at the heart of, of the maybe two biggest tension points between a, a secular culture that pushes back on belief in the God of the Bible and those of us who believe in the God of the Bible. There are two questions that if you're going to have faith in a, a secular age, you're going to have to answer these two questions. And if you don't have faith, if you don't believe in the God of the Bible, my guess is these two questions probably have been questions that have made you walk away or, or, or wonder about the truth of Christianity. And yet the, this text goes right at those two questions. At first, why is the God of the Bible so exclusive? And secondly, how can there be a furnace and a good God? Right? Why is, why is Christianity, the story of the Bible, present a God who says, you can only worship me? And how can there be that God and yet a furnace? So first, why is the God of the Bible so exclusive? Well, to jump into Daniel 3, you have to, you have to know a little bit about Daniel 2, where Andrew preached out of last week. And if, if you were here with us, um, Daniel 2, um, there's this dream Nebuchadnezzar has, and he wants someone to interpret it for him. And, and at the center of this dream, he sees this image, Daniel 2, verses 32 and 33. The image that Nebuchadnezzar sees, the head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And if you remember, Daniel interprets that dream for Nebuchadnezzar. And what he says is these different parts of this different image you see, they're different kingdoms. 
Um, and you, Nebuchadnezzar, you are, you are the head of gold. You're the best kingdom. You're the strongest kingdom, the most powerful kingdom. You are the gold standard kingdom. And Nebuchadnezzar, apparently, his, his thoughts on that dream stopped there because when Daniel went on to interpret the rest of the dream, the whole point of the dream was that God was building a kingdom himself that was going to crush and, and overcome all of these earthly kingdoms. And Nebuchadnezzar forgot that. He just, he just remembers the head of gold. And so he builds this giant golden statue, um, 90 feet tall, in honor of him and his kingdom and this dream, most likely, that, that he had. And there's a lot of debate. So what, what is this image? What's going on here? And um, some people think the image is of Nebuchadnezzar himself. It's, it's an image meant to represent him. Um, some think it's, it's an image to represent one of the, the gods of the Babylonians. Um, and while those are possible, um, I, I don't think either one of those are exactly right. But instead, what I think this, this tall image is that Nebuchadnezzar expects everyone to bow down and worship before is an image meant to re- represent just the kingdom of Babylon, the spirit of the kingdom Babylon. And the reason I think that is because what you find in Daniel uh, chapter 3 verse 2 where you you get an understanding as to what Nebuchadnezzar is doing, why he's built this image and why he wants everyone to bow down to it. Verse 2, Daniel 3. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. You get this long list of people, um, and this long list of people is, is all of the people Nebuchadnezzar has conquered and is now in charge of from all over the world. Um, you have to remember, uh, Daniel and his three friends were in Israel, in that nation, and Babylon had conquered them, and so Babylon had brought these people um, into Babylon, in, 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 into exile, and, and Nebuchadnezzar had done that all over the world. So people from all over the world with different religions, different moralities, different worldviews, different ways of seeing the world, they'd all come in to Babylon, and, and so what, what Nebuchadnezzar does here is sort of a peace strategy. He says, listen, you, you all can have your own gods, you can have your own way of life, you can have your own morality, but... Babylon must fit into that picture, and you must bow to the kingdom of Babylon. We are now most prominent in your life. You don't have to give up your gods, but you have to add ours. And so that, that's what's going on here, and, and it's a strategy for peace, which works, except for three people. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego do not bow to the image. And this point, we, we don't know where Daniel is. Maybe Daniel is, is off. He's moved his way up in the Babylonian government. He might be off on state business far away somewhere. Um, it could be that Daniel was so powerful that no one thought to challenge him and tell Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel's not bowing to the image. Um, and so we don't know why Daniel's not there. We, but we do know Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are here, and they are who the story focuses in on. And yet I want to be clear, Nebuchadnezzar, he's not asking them to renounce their God. He's just asking them to add a God into um, their, their pantheon, to add the Babylonian kingdom into their, their many elements of what they worship. But they can't. Because the God of the Bible is an exclusive God. You cannot worship other gods. You cannot bow down to other kingdoms if you worship the God of the Bible. If, if you worship the God of the Bible, that, there's only one to whom you may bow. And so a lot, of, a lot of people, including Nebuchadnezzar, and, and in our culture as well, find this, this exclusivity problematic. Right? Surely Nebuchadnezzar would have seen this as a threat to his kingdom. He has these three guys who are saying, no, we're not going to worship your kingdom, your gods. We're only worshiping our kingdom, 
our gods. That, that if you think you have the, the way, the truth, the, the, the only way to see the world, your morality is right, your religion is right, you may think you should attack the other, religion, uh, other religious people. You should attack the other kingdoms. Because your God's right, their God is wrong. It might, th- having an exclusive view of God may lead to violence, may lead to trouble. It's a view that's very common in, in our culture as well today. That just two months ago, um, in the New York Times, um, Gary Gutting, a professor of philosophy at the University of St. Louis, wrote this op-ed in the New York Times. He said, The potential for intolerance lies in the logic of religions like Christianity and Islam that say their teaching derived from a divine revelation. For them, the truth that God has revealed um, is the most important truth. Therefore, um, denying or doubting this truth is extremely dangerous both for non-believers who lack the essential truth and for believers who may well be misled by the denials and doubts of non-believers. Given these assumptions, it's easy to conclude that even extreme steps are warranted to eliminate non-belief. Now, what Gunning's saying there is if you have exclusive religious beliefs, you may conclude that, well, I have the right to take extreme steps to eliminate non-belief. It could lead to violence. It could lead um, to, to, to all sorts of evil things. And so here's the tension that I have to live into as, as someone who believes in the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is, is exclusive. Um, I believe Christianity, in, in the words of Gutting, is, is actually a te- is the teaching derived from divine revelation. Right? Jesus is the divine revelation of God, the most definitive word about who God is ever spoken to humanity. And yet, I also think his warning is right. Exclusivism can lead to power struggle. Thinking you have the truth and everyone else is wrong can lead to violence, can lead to arrogance, can lead to a threat within society. And so if you're a Christian, if you believe in the God of the Bible, can you at least see why those in a pluralistic society around us might be slightly suspicious of us when we say we have the truth and you don't? Do you see why Nebuchadnezzar might be suspicious of three people saying we will not bow to your kingdom? So once you see this tension, you feel this tension... There appear to be two ways forward, but I, I think there's only one. That, that some, including Gutting and including what Nebuchadnezzar is doing here, is, is saying, well, the answer is to be more inclusive. You can't claim that you have the truth. You can't claim that your take on ultimate reality is right. You can't claim that your morality is, is right. That you can claim you have a truth, that you have one of many truths, but you can't claim that you have the truth. Right? That you, you shouldn't try to convert other people to your own faith thinking that you're right, they're, they're wrong. But as a Christian, right, that doesn't work. God is too exclusive for that. You see that with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They can't bow. Right? If, listen, if you're a Christian, you believe Jesus is the divine revelation from God, the way, the truth, the life. Right? It's divine revelation sent to save humanity. But we can't just become inclusive and say, well, it doesn't matter what you believe. What? So that's one way for it, but I don't think it works. And it doesn't just not work for us as Christians because the Bible would speak against that way of thinking. But I also think it, it, work, it doesn't work for those who aren't Christians, that, that, that want a pluralistic society where all truths are, are equal. That, that for a pluralistic society to look at, look at a Christian or any person who is religious and to say, you know, you can't think your take on ultimately, ultimate reality is, is right. You can't think you have the truth. You can't try to convert other people to your way of thinking. Um, is actually saying to the religious people, we have the truth and you don't and you need to convert to our way of, of, of thinking. We have the best take on ultimate reality. You religious people who are exclusive are wrong and we who are inclusive were right. right? It's doing the same thing that you're condemning 
people, again, said a lot of people want to say, well, you have to be more inclusive and not exclusive. And I would say we all have exclusive beliefs. We all have exclusive ways of viewing the world. And what appears initially to be a very inclusive way of seeing the world, right, that all truth is equal, that, that just bow to all truth, that, that just add our God into the midst of the many gods, um, actually becomes very exclusive the further you push it in. You see it with Nebuchadnezzar. I've conquered you. I'm more powerful. You have to bow to my morality. You have to bow to my values. You have to bow to my way of seeing the world. Whereas Christianity, on the other hand, it appears very exclusive at the start, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego cannot bow down to a false image of God. And yet you push further into the Christian story, and it becomes more inclusive the further you push in. Right? It's the people of God in this narrative, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're not angry. They're not defensive. They're not frothing at the mouth. They're not threatening. It's Nebuchadnezzar who's the inclusive one trying to, to control belief, control thought, control others. That the further you push into belief in the God of the Bible, the more inclusive you become. And the reason why is that the center of our story as Christians is God dying for his enemies. At the center of the Christian faith is this trust that God is sovereign over all the world. Which means I don't have to grab control. I don't have to resort to violence. Not just because God is running the universe, but also because God's unique and most important act in history was dying for his enemies. And so Christianity, it appears exclusive at the outset. Yes, we, we will not bow down to other images, but you push further in and God's there dying for his enemies. Whereas the inclusive way of seeing the world appears very inclusive at the outset, but when you push in further and further, it has to do away with religious belief. It has to do away with unique cultures and unique perspectives in the world. Everyone has to bow to the pluralistic way of life. And so for those of you who are Christians in the room, I would just ask, does your faith reflect the exclusive inclusivity of Christianity? That do you have an exclusive faith? Is your heart undivided towards the worship of the God of the Bible alone? Or can you reflect on your life and see clear instances and decisions where you've made a break with the spirit of this age, this pluralistic age? It tells you to bow down to money, to bow down to sex, to bow down to appearance, to bow down to, to this kingdom in which you live and put it first. Have you broken from the spirit of this age? Do you have an exclusive faith? But at the same time, is that exclusion, is that exclusivity to your faith, has it made you a more inclusive person? Have you suffered for those who disagree with you? Have you given up a defensive posture and instead faced the world with a, a calmness and a, and a faithfulness, knowing God is in control, even in the face of a furnace? And to push even further into to this season you and I are, are in as an election season, I would just ask, as a, as a Christian, are you more inclusive during this time? Are you, are you angry? <laughs> Are you more open to others or are you more threatening? Are you more fearful or do you calmly trust the sovereignty of God? And so maybe this morning you don't believe in God and you find the Christianity's um, exclusivity troubling um, to you. Right? You can think of easy examples of, of Christian history where the church has abused its power, where it's used violence to get its own way. And I would just say I agree with you. But at the end of the day, what you want is not less Christianity. Right, less of, of the God of the Bible in the world. You want more. Right? You want more of the God who's dying for his enemies. More of the gospel, which is God entering into our world to know us and to meet us where we are. That If, if you want a world where religious violence is, is excluded, you want more of the gospel, not less. So as Christians, our contribution to this pluralistic society, it's not, it's not just our, exclusive, our exclusivity saying we only worship one God. And it's not just our inclusivity. Right, We're not going to bow to the spirit of the age, it's both. We worship one God, and yet that God leads us to serve our enemies. 
Right? We'll never bow to the spirit of the age, but we will die serving it as Christ died for us. And so that's how this text approaches this exclusivity of the Bible. What appears exclusive, you push further in, and, and there's these calm, resolved three friends in the face of the furnace. Which raises the second question, how can there be a furnace and a good God? Right, the 21st century has no shortage of furnaces, of political powers killing their dissidents. And so the question has to be raised, how can a good God allow suffering? How can we say God is running this, this narrative of Daniel, and yet these three friends are facing their death? It's essentially the question that Nebuchadnezzar puts to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in verse 15 of, of Daniel 3. He says, if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? There's only two ways to answer that question. Who is the God who will rescue you out of my hands? There's only two ways to answer that question. One is there, there isn't a God to rescue you out of his hands. The furnace has the final word, right? We live in an atheistic, evolutionistic, Darwinian world where the world is run by whoever has the most power. The world appears out of control because it, it is, and it's run by whoever has the most guns or has the hottest furnace, right? The proudful boast of despotic powers will go unanswered, and even you drive more individually into the, the, the things of suffering you and I face. Something like cancer will go unanswered. Abuse victims will not find Justice, right? The furnace will come and there's no one to save. There's only two ways to answer that question. Who is the God who will rescue you out of my hand? One is there is none. And two is there is a God. And I realize that that sounds naive in a world full of, of furnaces, right? Maybe that's even why Daniel 3 might feel like a fairy tale um, to you. That some of us adults who have lived a long enough life, we know too many furnaces. We know too many instances of suffering. Too many instances where really good people have their lives completely fall apart, that we've asked the question, what God is there to deliver us out of the hands of our enemies? And yet there's only two choices to Nebuchadnezzar's question. There's no God or God is coming. There's a fourth man in the furnace, right? And so who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Nebuchadnezzar asks. And Daniel 3 gives two answers to that question. The first is that the, the answer that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will give in verses 16 through 18. I love this answer. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Right? He says, I'm going to kill you. And they're like, we don't, we don't need to answer that. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods, or worship the golden image that you have set up. That even if he does not. It's the clearest picture of biblical faith I, you maybe can find in all of the scripture. Because biblical faith, it, it rests first on this confidence that God can save anyone, anywhere, anytime. God is not limited in the way that you and I are limited. We can ask him of anything and he can do anything. And yet, biblical faith does not presume that God must act in a certain way. It does not assume that we're owed to suffering free life, and it does not assume that God must give us a certain outcome. And so Brian Chappell, a, a pastor, a seminary professor, wrote these words reflecting on Daniel 3. He says, Biblical faith is not confidence in particular outcomes. 
It is confidence in the sovereign God. We trust that he knows what we cannot discern, plans what we cannot anticipate, and secures our eternity in ways beyond our fathoming. If they lived, they knew their God was near. If they died, they knew their God was still near. That's biblical faith. Right? Confidence is not in outcome, but in, near, in the nearness of God, regardless of outcome. And so Christians, I would ask, if you believe in the God of the Bible, what kind of faith do you have? Even if he does not faith? Or only if he does faith? Is your faith, is your trust, is your love for God connected to outcomes? Or is it free of outcomes? I felt this question in a fresh way um, last night that for most of my life, I have rooted for a particular baseball team without any respect for outcome. Um, I've been a Cubs fan my entire life, and, uh, and it's normally met the outcomes always bad. Um, and yet, that's, that's one of the unique things about Cub fans is you hang out with them, and it's like, well, we, we know we're probably going to lose. It's probably going to be terrible. We're going to cry, but we're going to keep going to Wrigley Field. We're going to keep rooting. And, and last night, I had this new world open with a good outcome, and it's like, it's, I feel like I live in a new world this morning, um, I guess. And, uh, and that's such a, I mean, honestly, in many ways, such a highlight. Like, my, my, my rooting for the Cubs has never been attached to outcomes, and and as your faith in Christ should never be attached to outcomes. Right? We are called to even if faith, not only if faith. Because only if faith says, God, I'll believe you. If you deliver me, if you give me the outcome I want, um, if, you, if you direct my life in the way I want it to go, then I will trust you. God, I would just, is that your faith? Does God have to come through you in order for you to trust him? Does he have to give you what you want? Or is he what you want? The Christians, we're called to, even if he does not, faith. Right? Even if I die in the furnace, I'll believe. Right? Because what my heart longs for at most is, is not an outcome. Right? It's not suffering-free life. It's not to have all of my questions answered. It's not to have no trouble. It's not to have all the furnaces taken away from me. What I want most in life, if I have faith in the God of the Bible, is the God of the Bible. Which means I can have him no matter the furnace or not. And so that's one reason why we, we've, tried, we've called the series Life Without Control, right? And the one, on the one hand, we live in a cultural moment where things feel like they're out of control. And on the other hand, that's the life we were always called to. Faith is a life without control. It's, it's saying to God, you control the outcomes. You are sovereign. I don't need control of my life. I just need you. I'm not here for you, God, because I, I think if I trust you and I love you and I worship you, you'll give me certain outcomes. I'm here for you, to have you. You are the outcome that I want. And so that's, that's the faith we're called to, even if he does not faith. And yet I would say if the story stopped there and they went and burned up in the furnace, I, that would be a really depressing story, right? right? Believing in God, even if he takes you to the, the, the furnace, it's soul crushing, isn't it? And maybe some of you are there right now, your life it feels out of control, there are things happening to you that, that are weighing you down, they're discouraging you, they're filling you with fear, and, and God's answer is go to the furnace. It's not encouraging at all, is it? And yet... I said there's two answers that this story gives to that question. How can there be a furnace and a good God? The first is your faith was always meant to have the furnace in the backdrop. Your faith is not present with you so that God will take every furnace from you. That's not why we trust God. That's the first answer. And the second answer is what happens next in the story. The Nebuchadnezzar, he's furious at the three friends' response. And so he orders the furnace seven times hotter than usual, which is just another way of saying, I want these guys to suffer as much 
as possible. And so they, they heat the furnace up. They bound Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego together. They take them to the furnace. The furnace is so hot, the men who have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego die as they throw them into the furnace. And what happens next is that the, the, narr- the narrator turns our attention away from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to Nebuchadnezzar and what Nebuchadnezzar sees. And Nebuchadnezzar sees, sees two things. The first he sees is, is he realizes, didn't we put three men bound into the furnace? Or he asks the people around him, and they all say, yes, O king. And then he says, well, why do I see four men unbound walking around unharmed? Why do I see a son of a God in the furnace. Later, why do I see an angel there? Who's the fourth man? Well, you read through the Hebrew Scriptures, and this, this figure shows up a few different times. It shows up at the burning bush with Moses, where we're told an angel of the Lord was in the midst of the burning bush. But then when the angel speaks, it's said that the Lord himself was speaking to Moses. The Moses is in exile, he's ruined his life, and this angel of the Lord appears, and when he speaks, it's the Lord speaking. The figure shows up again um, to Jacob on the night Jacob thinks he's going to die the next day. His brother Esau, whom he had cheated and lied to, is bringing his his, his entire uh, um, um, horde with him, his army, his his possessions, to meet Jacob. Jacob thinks he's going to die, and as Jacob is walking out by himself, this angel of the Lord meets him. But again, when, the Lord, when he speaks, it's the Lord. It's not the angel of the Lord, it's the Lord. In a third moment, Joshua is about to, to have a, a huge battle the next day. And he sees this angel of the Lord figure, and he asks the angel, because he's terrified of them, who, are you on our side or are you on their side? And the angel, again, it says, it's the Lord speaking when the angel speaks, says, No. And so this question, this tension, who is this figure who is from the Lord? And yet when he speaks, he is the Lord. Who is the son of a God in, in, the, in the furnace, this angel of the Lord? Well, Christians, I think, have a better answer to that because you read further into the biblical story and you, you hear of this figure who's sent from God and yet is God. Who's the son of God and yet when he speaks, he, he claims to be God. That I think the fourth man in the furnace is the pre-incarnate Jesus. And whether it's Jesus or not, the question is raised is, is what is he doing walking around in there? Right? If this guy had the power to deliver Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego from the furnace, why didn't he like jump in and pull them out? Why is he in the furnace walking around with them? That if he could have rescued them from the flames, surely he could have rescued them before they're thrown in. Why would he meet them and walk around with them in the furnace? It's because God's ultimate answers, answer to the furnaces of our world, to the suffering in your life, to the pain in your life, is not just to save you from it, but to join you in it. And you have to see both sides of that, both sides of the work of Jesus, who both joins you in the midst of your suffering and saves you from it. Jesus is the one who goes into the furnace with you and, and into the furnace for you. And so in Matthew 13, Jesus, he's talking about the wrath of God as, as a furnace, that everything that's broken and sinful and wrong in this world is going to be thrown into that furnace and, and burned up in God's judgment, which is a problem. Because you take a look at any life, you take a look at my life, you take a look at your life, and you dig deeply enough. And what you'll find is things that you've broken, relationships that you've broken, things you've said that have hurt others, that have harmed others. So you take a deep enough look, and we have broken things in us that should go into the furnace. 
And so Jesus, he, he describes God's wrath as a furnace. And when he's in the garden, he's sweating blood and tear. Jonathan Edwards, who is a preacher who always used poetic language, says the reason that Jesus was sweating blood and sweat in that moment is because the furnace to God's wrath, the furnace had, the door had been open and Jesus felt the heat. For the things you and I had broken in ourselves, in the people around us, in our communities, the things we had done wrong, Jesus was going into the furnace for us. And I would just ask, do you see Jesus doing that for you? Not just suffering with you in the midst of life's pains, but suffering for you for the things that you have sinned and done wrong. Do you see what the the God of the Bible offers you? A life where your suffering is never meaningless, whether it's your fault or whether it's not. A God who both deals with your sin and, and with your pain. Do you see Jesus doing that, or are you more like Nebuchadnezzar? Who rather than acknowledge there's a God more powerful than him, there's a God who has rescued these three guys out of his hands, he, he doesn't ask all four men to come out of the furnace. He only asks for three and leaves the Son of Man in the furnace. But yes, the God of the Bible is an exclusive God. You cannot bow to any other. And yet the one with the most power in this narrative He's not the one threatening. He's not the one grabbing power himself. He's not the one who is, is, is exhorting to violence. He's the one in the furnace suffering. What appears an exclusive God is a God willing to embrace pain. And what appears is a world where suffering excludes the possibility of a God who can save is actually a world where suffering is the very place you will find him. And so do you see Jesus in the furnace for you, with you? Do you see why Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't need God to give them a certain outcome in order to trust him? Do you see why they could be in a culture very opposed to everything about them, yet not be defensive, not be threatened, not be fearful, be calm in the face of a furnace? Why their life's cry was our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from this furnace. But even if he does not, let's pray.